John. Why don't you uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. And you're going to do, you're going to have your, your finger, well, we're going to be in Matthew 17, but also flip over to Mark chapter 9, so a couple of books over, and, and, and put, put uh, uh, that little, hey, you're like, hey, I can finally use that little string thing in my Bible. Put that in there, all right, or put a bullet in there, put your finger in there, put your neighbor's finger in there, whatever, right? Just get, get, get Mark chapter 9 ready to go, but be in Matthew chapter 17. As you're turning there, have you guys ever watched those YouTube videos where uh, the, the athlete disguises himself like a total, total non-athlete and he goes to play like pickup basketball or football against people in the park and they're like, yeah, you can play because you're a total nerd. And then he just destroys them, right? And then he finally reveals himself. You've seen those ones? Or, or maybe you've watched Undercover Boss, right? Where they put on the, the, the disguise, they go in at the end of the show, right? The, the drive-through cashiers talking to him and he takes off the mustache and the wig and they're like, whoa, you're Ronald McDonald, you own McDonald's. McDonald's, right? I don't really know who owns McDonald's, obviously, but, right? And, and there's this reveal. They're like, whoa, now I, I didn't know who you were, but now I see who you are. And in this morning's text, we're going to see a few of Jesus' closest friends, his, his closest followers. They're going to have an encounter with Jesus that would shock them. An, an opportunity to see who the real Christ is. They, they knew Jesus, but they're going to get to know him in a way where, where he, he reveals, pulls off the disguise of the flesh that he has on him, and they see the truth of who Jesus is. And they, they had an idea of who Christ was, but they have this encounter with him that would change, change them forever. I, that's been, been my whole prayer through this whole series is that as we talk about having an encounter with Jesus, it's just not about reading about encounters that happened in God's word, but that we would. We would encounter Jesus. We would be changed by that. So leading up to Matthew 17, Jesus had been talking to his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, and it was confusing for them because they were like, wait a minute, we, we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you were going to overthrow the Romans. I mean, Peter had already ordered the make Israel great again hats. He had it all planned out, right? They, they didn't understand the mission of Jesus. They didn't actually know who Jesus was. And, and by not actually knowing Jesus, in those moments when they should have been prepared, they weren't. They were unprepared. In those moments that they should have had courage, they were filled with fear. In those moments where they should have been at peace, they lived in doubt. And, and they had a problem that at its root was a worship problem, was a glory problem. They, they didn't understand the true glory of Jesus, who he really is. And I wonder if at times, don't, don't we do the same? D don't our doubts, doesn't, doesn't our inactivity, maybe our, our, our fear, doesn't it reveal in us the same worship problem? So what I, what I hope happens this morning is that, that, that we have an adjustment in our hearts, our hearts towards worship. That when we see Jesus, we're so filled with who he is that we're transformed. We move out on mission. Right, Matthew 17, if you're taking notes, here, here's the first thing we're going to see. We're going to see worship on the mountain. Worship on the mountain. Matthew 17, 1, it starts off like this. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up, on a, up a high mountain by themselves. 
Let's stop there real quick. We, we see here that, that there's this after six days, and we read that, we go, okay, six days have passed, and here they go. But, but remember that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and as they hear that, as they read that, something kind of sparks in their mind. They're like, wait a minute, six days, then they go up in a mountain? There's something unique happening here, and, and they would understand, wait, this, this sounds an awful lot like this is a throwback to Exodus 19 and 20 where Moses waits for six days before he's allowed to go up on the mountain. God's presence, his glory drops over this mountain, and God says, I'm going to call you up. After six days, he calls Moses up in the mountain. And now here we have Jesus. After six days, he calls Peter and James and John up this mountain, and there's, there's something I love about, about who Jesus picks. He goes, I want you three guys to come with me. Now, you got to wonder, like, is it because these guys were the most committed of the disciples? Or were, were they just Jesus' closest friends? Were, were they the most perfect of disciples? And we know that's not true. I mean, just one chapter before this chapter, we see Peter completely messing up who Christ is. Jesus saying, I'm going to go die and be resurrected. Peter says, no way. I'm not, letting you ha- I'm not letting that happen. This can't be how the plan works out. And Jesus turns to Peter. I mean, talk about needing counseling after this. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Okay, that, that's Peter. That's who he said, come on up on the mountain with me. Only a few chapters later from here, you'll see James and John. What do they do? They get their mom, all right? They get their mom to go do this power plan. Hey, hey, you go talk to Jesus and see if, see if, see if he can make us the VPs of your kingdom. And sandwiched in between those two examples of their complete screw-ups, we have Jesus saying, hey, come with me up on this mountain. I want you guys to see this. I don't know about you, but that gives me so much hope. That these guys aren't perfect. And, 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 and so when we see that, it should be good news for every one of us here in this room, except for those who think they're perfect, and then you need to really hear it, right? <laughs> that God can use the lowest of the low to do incredible things. And, then, and here's what I love so much about our church. Not because it's filled with the best of the best, but because it's filled with trophies of God's grace. In fact, just this weekend, um, the junior highs were having an a all-nighter in here, and maybe some of you are like, yeah, well, I know my junior high has still not recovered. Okay, sorry about that. Um, Marshall's in the back. Talk to him. <laughs> but during that all-nighter, they had a, a couple people share, and one of them was um, Randy Robb, who shared his testimony. And for those who don't know Randy, Randy is one of my favorite people to preach to, and here's why. He's the one who's not afraid to yell, amen! Right, when you hear someone doing this... Because God's great. That's him, all right? And I, I love that. And here's why I love that. Because he's responding to the grace of God. Why? Because his testimony is a testimony of God's grace. A man who was lost in addictions. And God said to him, come up on this mountain. I want to show you something. Let me show you who I am. And Randy meets Jesus transformed and now being used by God to make a difference in the lives of people who are crushed by addictions. I love that. I love that. Randy's one of the many people who would, who would fill the chairs of this church who would say, I can't believe that I get God's grace. That, that Jesus would say to me, come follow me. Come up onto this mountain. Come be where I am. And listen, what is it that changes us from being fearful, messed up, screw-ups, distracted, disobedient, discouraged followers of Christ? It's an encounter with Jesus that changes us, that grabs our attention. That's why I say it's a worship 
issue. It's when our hearts are filled with awe and wonder, with worship that we're transformed. And so look at what Peter and James and John see. Look at verse 2. And he, talking about Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Here's the thing, we, we just read the scripture before, uh, after worship, where Jay just read it, where, where, where he talked about Moses going up onto the mountain, and, and his face would shine. Why did his face shine? Now, here's what happened. Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. You can't see my face. I'm too holy for you that in your sin, if you were to see me, you would just die. And, and so what I'm going to do is God says to Moses, I'm going to hide you behind this rock. I'm going to pass by you, just pass by you so that my glory is seen that way. And just by passing by him, Moses' face shone with this reflected glory and, and a shine on his face that lasted for days. But he, here's why this is different. It says Jesus' face shone like the sun. This isn't Jesus reflecting glory like the moon reflects the sun. This is the sun itself. When Jesus was, it says transfigured. It's just a fancy word for transformed. When he was transformed, he's still Jesus, but there's something different about him. His, his divinity, what's going on? His divinity bursting through his humanity. When you think of it this way, for all these years of Jesus' life, there's this miracle where, where God contained in flesh. And on this mountain, it's almost like Jesus is hitting the pause button on that miracle. The miracle of the word becoming flesh, and now he's displaying his glory. And Matthew's saying, listen, it's, it's like his face was the sun. His clothes white as light. Luke, when he's describing his account, he says that, that Jesus became as bright as lightning. He's like, yeah, it was just so bright like lightning. Mark, in his account, says his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, I got to imagine Matt and Mark and Luke up in heaven hanging out, and they're comparing notes. I don't know. When I read this, what I think. This is how my brain works. And then, and like, hey, hey, hey Matthew, how, how did you describe that, that transfiguration? He's like, man, I got to tell you, I, I thought of the brightest thing in our universe. And Jesus' face was like that, like the sun was exploding through his face. And, and Luke's like, yeah, yeah, me too. I, I, I just picture like, like in a dark night where there's a storm on and lightning flies, and that's all you can see is the lightning. Hey, Mark, how about you? And he's like, I was thinking about ultra Tide Pods. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Here's, here's what's so cool about even what I really am. Here's what's cool about what, what Mark is saying there even. Both Matthew and Mark talk about his clothes being so white. There is this foreshadowing of what's coming. The glory of Christ in the resurrection. Where at the resurrection, it says the angels who came, they, they were dressed in, in bright white. And in Revelation, when John sees Jesus fully in his glory, right? John, his best friend on earth, he doesn't give him a hug, doesn't high-five him. It says he falls down like he's dead because Jesus is before him in all his glory. It says there, in, in bright white. So amen to that. I can't wait for that. That's the picture here of Christ. It's what they see. So look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. 
Now, again, if you're a Jewish reader, you'd be like, are you kidding me? We read that and go, oh, cool, some Old Testament people were there too as well. But for them, for them, they're like, these are the heroes of the Old Covenant. Moses is, is like, like uh, he's the law. He represents what the law was, and Elijah represents the prophets. And what's actually happening here is you've got this personification of God's word on the mountain. Romans 3.20 says that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. You, you see it happening here on this mountain. Moses and Elijah now standing with the glory that they've been pointing to for years. So they're talking. We see in the other texts, other accounts of the gospels, they were talking about Christ's death and resurrection. They're saying this is what it's all been about. It's all pointing to this, this glory now with Moses and Elijah. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, I love that. <laughs> Here's why I love that. Peter's always the one to speak up, right? Here you are in the presence of the glorified Christ. You have Moses and Elijah are there, and Peter's like, I should probably say something. <laughs> so Peter, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's like, hey, hey, this is awesome that we're here. This is so good. I, I, listen, I'll run down Algonquin Outfitters. I'll get some tents. Moses, you want a blue one? Elijah, you want like a rain fly on yours? Like, how do you want this to go? And he's talking and he's talking and he won't stop talking. And it says in another text that, that it was, he was so full of fear, he didn't know what else to do. Maybe you're like, that's me, man. When I get scared, I just don't stop talking. This is Peter. He's going on and on and on. And finally, look at verse five. He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Such a great verse. God's basically saying, Hey, Peter, Peter, be quiet. Be quiet. Listen to my son. Let God speak. Do you know that Peter comes back to this moment when he writes 2 Peter? And in 2 Peter 2, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, man, look these up this week and read them. Because he's like, when I was on that mountain, when God was speaking from the cloud, and he's speaking, he said he's still speaking, and he's speaking. What Peter says? Peter says he's still speaking through his word. He goes, if you want to hear that same voice, he goes, here it is right here. I've said this before where people say, do you think God still speaks? Like, can you hear him speak? I'm like, totally. Read scripture out loud. <laughs> you hear the voice of the Lord. Let God speak. And, and worship then begins to grow. Why? Because your attention now is on what is God saying? What is God doing? What is God calling me to? How do I see him? And, and your attention grows, it grows on him. And what happens is when your attention is more on him, your affection begins to grow as well because your affection for him is tied to your attention to him. Where, where our eyes go, our heart goes, right? Where, where our heart is, that's where our eyes will be. Uh, uh, attention and affection are so linked together. I mean, think about it. How, how many voices do we hear all day, all the time? Constantly listening to voices that are, listen, they're calling us to worship. And you're scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, or if you're super old, scrolling through Facebook, right? 
our hearts are being drawn to these lesser glories, the, the glories of acceptance, the glories of relationships, the, the glories of image or comfort. And, and, and here's what's so, so dangerous about that. We're listening to what, what, what social media is saying. We're listening to that voice more than, more than the voice of God. And maybe, maybe in that moment, maybe what's so dangerous about just being mindlessly scrolling through the internet is this, that in that moment, maybe we, we're going to miss hearing God saying, hey, listen to my son. Let's not let the, our, our hearts and our minds be drawn away from the greatest glory. Are, are you listening to the Son? Now, what's going on, though, with Peter in these tents? Why would he say, let's put up some tents? Now, it, it, it could mean, and he says, I'm going to build a tent for all three of you, and, and he's trying to put them on an equal plane. Like, oh, we've, we've got Moses, the law, we've got Elijah, the prophets, and we've got Jesus here, and, and let's put, and, and, and God's like, yeah, yeah, God the Father's like, no, 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 these guys aren't equals. This is my son, the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact radiance, the exact representation of God's being. So when you see Jesus, you, you see God. To, to encounter Jesus, you're not just encountering a teacher or a prophet. Jesus claims to be something more. Jesus demonstrated that he was something more. And so in that moment, when you see that Jesus is God the Son, you have two options. You, there's not a third one. There's only really two. You, you either reject him as a, as a crazy person or you worship him as Lord. It, it's not just, well, I'll listen to him or I'll follow his teachings. No, no, no. No, if he is who he claims to be, it's worship. It's, it's, you, it's you saying, Jesus, you're now the center of my life. You're my ultimate treasure. There's no middle ground here. It's, it's, it's either I'm just going to not bother with him or I'm going to worship him. And I think that's what Peter's doing. P Peter's saying, we got to build a tabernacle. That, that's what tent could mean. It would, it would be a tabernacle. Like, like when Moses came off the mountain, they, they built a tabernacle, a place of worship. And, and part of that is Peter seeing the glory of God in Jesus. Here's the father speak. And he feels that gap between himself and God. He's like, well, we need a temple. We, we need sacrifices. We need, we need things to protect us from the presence of God. Now, why would I say that? Look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When they hear the voice of the Father speak, they're terrified. They're in the presence of God. They, they literally think they're about to be killed. They, they know what God said to Moses when, he's, when God said, hey, hey, only you, Moses. Anybody else comes on the mountain, anybody else even touches the mountain, they're dead. They know that God said to Moses, if you see me in all my glory, you're dead. And they're like, wait a minute, we're sinners. We're in the midst of this glory. We're toast. Look what happens. Look at verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. How are they saved? How, how, how do they rise without fear? Look at verse 8. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Only Jesus. 
Jesus, the, the temple to end all temples, the tabernacle to end all tabernacles, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's saying, like, Peter, you, you don't need a tabernacle. You have Jesus. And, and now the fear of the Lord becomes this worship that, that out of the cloud, God the Father speaks of his love for the Son. It's the gospel unfolding. And Jesus gives what, what Moses couldn't give, what Elijah couldn't provide. That through Jesus, we have access to the Father. Which, listen, this is what our hearts long for. It's the glory we seek everywhere else. It's why we're looking for it everywhere else. In good movies, in books, in, on social media, in art, in stories, in relationships, in family. There's this, this deep need of soul acceptance. And so listen, worship is not just believing. The disciples believed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Peter had already confessed that just before coming up on the mountain. But here, here, they're in worship. Surrounded by the glory of God. On their faces in awe. They see Jesus. This is our whole point in worship. Our whole point is, Lord, I only want to see Jesus. I got to wonder if Peter had another reason for saying, hey, let's build some tents up here. Because he is fully engaged in worship. And then like us, he wants to stay there, Right? Like, don't you ever, you get those mountaintop experiences, you're like, man, I don't want to leave this mountain. This is a good place to be. I love mountaintops. It's, it's why I love our church. Every Sunday, I get so fired up to come and to worship together. Because I feel like, honestly, I don't know if you feel this, but you're like, man, Sunday morning, it's this mountaintop. Like, the rest of the week can be going so horribly, and I could even anticipate that Monday's not going to be that great either, but on Sunday morning, as we stand together, and I hear the voices of other brothers and sisters lifting high the name of Jesus, man, there is an experience in that. There is worship happening there. And I'm like, man, I'm so excited to be here. I mean, amen to that. Don't, don't, I mean, God has gifted our church with talented worship leaders, but more than that, People that lead with this heart of, man, I love Jesus and I want you to see him this morning. I want to lift your gaze. I'm telling you, I don't ever want to miss a Sunday. When I travel, when we go somewhere, we go to another church, I, I like worship there too, but I miss being here. Because here's what I know. I know that I need corporate worship. I know that I need to gather together with the saints because I know I need my heart realigned. I know that I, I, I often need, my, my focus needs to be readjusted. My, my soul needs to be put in order, and it's in worship that that happens. When we celebrate the glory of God with our eyes fixed on his holiness and his grace. In, in a place of awe like the disciples are here on this mountain. My hope is this, I know that... Pastor Eric's hope as our worship pastor is this, that on Sunday morning, that, that there is this moment that is beyond the music, but there's this moment where your eyes are lifted and, and you see no one but Jesus. That it's in worship where you cry out, there's one thing that I want to live for, and that's Jesus. There's, there's one thing I want to have my thoughts and my desires and my gifts and my talents go for, and it's for Jesus. There's, there's one place that I want to rest my heart and rest the hope of my soul, and that's Jesus. There's one reason for the things that I, that I do, and it's Jesus, that I, I, would, I would trust him, that I would believe in him, that I would celebrate him, that I would, I would follow him, that I would worship him. 
And Jesus says to these guys, as they're on their face in fear, but in worship, and Jesus says in verse 7, he says, have no fear. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I love that, 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 that the gospel casts out fear, that, that fear has to leave. Because fear isn't just a feeling. Scripture would say fear is a spirit. And, and Paul says to Timothy that God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of what? Of power and love and of sound mind. And, and those things only come through Jesus. Fear not. That when Jesus was on the cross, when, when he's pushing up on those nail-pierced feet and hands, and he's raising them, and he cries out, it is finished. That in that moment, an earthquake rips through Jerusalem. The curtain that separated us from God in the Holy of Holies in the temple rips, but not rips like you would think it would rip from the bottom up, but from the top down on purpose. Why? God's saying, man, I'm tearing this thing. You're not working your way up to me, but, but I'm tearing it open. I'm coming to you with grace. We have no fear, but perfect love that casts out fear. What kind of love? First John says it this way, that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. Big word, propitiation. What's that mean? It means a payment that satisfies. That when Christ went to the cross and he said, it is finished, it satisfied the law of God. It satisfied the justice of God. It satisfied the wrath of God, which means if you're in Christ, I love this, God can't be dissatisfied in you. Why? Because he's completely satisfied in his son, Jesus Christ. What does it say here in the text? The one who he loves. I mean, for me, let, let's think, man, does that not fuel your worship? That this awesome, mighty, holy God says, I love you and I accept you. It says in Zephaniah 3.17 that he rejoices over you with singing. That the creator of the universe rejoices over you with singing. So we come to worship, we fall on our face in awe and fear of the Lord and we celebrate his grace and his love. Now here's the thing. In saying all of that, what Peter then is going after is, he's going, this is amazing. What if we just stay up here and, like, we just start a church? Like, this is it. We're, we, we do Sunday morning up here. We stay up here for the rest of the, like, like, this is the best life group ever, right? And I love my life group, and no offense for my life group that's here, but Moses and Elijah and Jesus, I, like, let's have them in, right? But, but Jesus doesn't just say, don't fear. What else did he say in verse 7? What's it say? Look at it. He says, Rise. He says, rise, and they head down into the valley. If you've got your finger there or something was marking it off, go, go to Mark chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark. Listen, the, that mountaintop worship experience is to lead us somewhere. We, we don't actually stay on the mountain all the time, but the, the worship and that moment on the mountain actually will lead us into the valley. These guys worship, and then immediately they're heading down into the chaos of the valley. We worship on the mountain, listen, but we need faith in the valley. Faith in the valley. Mark recounts the same events of the mountain and in the valley. Look what he says in verse 14 of chapter 9. So they're coming down off the mountain. It says this, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, 
And he asked them, what are you arguing about? You know what? When he asked that, hey, what are you guys fighting about? None of the religious leaders or the disciples who were fighting in the moment, they don't say anything. Right? I think because they know they're in trouble. You ever bust into your kids when they're fighting in the bedroom or something like that? And you're like, what's going on? And there's silence. We're reading the Bible and sharing prayer requests. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, see what's going on here. We're, We're about to read of this huge need. And what are the religious people doing? They're arguing. There's this huge, desperate need. And the religious people are arguing. Like, man, thank God that only happened back in the first century, right? Spend 10 minutes on social media, right? And what do you see? People in need. People needing hope and healing and freedom. Look at verse 17 and 18. See see the pain that's happening here. And someone from the crowd answered him, verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. There's this dad who, who hears about Jesus coming into his town. And, and, and he has this hope that maybe Jesus can heal his son. And so with that hope, he brings his son. And instead of hope, he gets to watch religious people argue with each other. And I would say it this way. Our community is desperate for hope and freedom. I would pray this, Lord, that our church would not be so distracted by stone throwing, that, that, that we would not miss worshiping Jesus that we don't see the mission in front of us. And his dad speaks up about the trial he's in. I mean, think about the pain in this guy. Think about what's going on in this account. His son is sick. His son is actually demon-possessed. And this dad is desperate for hope. If you're a parent here, you're like, man, I get that, right? I've heard someone say this way, there's no pain like kid pain. If, If you've walked with a son or a daughter through sickness, or if if you've had or have a prodigal child, there is a pain that is so deep in the heart of a parent that you'll do whatever it takes. You're like, I'll sell the house. We'll move somewhere else. We'll do whatever it is to bring hope and healing. And this dad is thinking, man, if if I could only get my son to this miracle worker, maybe he can do something. And, And Jesus is up on the mountain. So when he shows up, he shows up and brings him to Jesus' disciples, and they weren't able to help. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, talking not to the man, but to the religious and the disciples fighting. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now, how interesting it is. We've been tracking through this series all along. And I find it interesting, whenever you see Jesus and he meets up with the religious people, they rarely see his glory. But whenever the demons see him, they recognize him immediately. Why is that? I think it's this. I think the demons know who, he is, know who he is, know who he is. They see the son of God for who he is, and it scares them to death. The religious can't see him. Why? Because Jesus doesn't fit into their little religious form, their mold. 
We've seen it in the series all along that, that Jesus didn't fit the religious mold mostly because of who he connected with, right? He, Jesus was going after and hanging out with and spending his time with the busted and the broken up and the sinners and the messed up. And Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And I pray this all the time. Lord, Lord, I pray that this church, our church, never becomes a country club for the religious. We'd always be a hospital for sick people. Now, here's what that means. It means as we say that, we say, amen, I do want that. We also say, yeah, that's going to be messy. And praise God for that. Praise God for a very messy church because Jesus says, I've come to seek the messy, right? Look at verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. A word there, from childhood, it, it means that it didn't happen since birth. So you, you get the picture in mind of what's going on here. This, this family has a, a, a baby boy, and they bring their son home, and they've got hopes and dreams for him. And then something started to seem off. So, something didn't seem right. And their son started to act differently. Look at verse 22. You see what it eventually gets to. It says, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Imagine how hard this would be. Imagine, you got a picture where they are. They're living by the Sea of Galilee. Three times a day, they're cooking with fire. And here's their son. Wherever there's water, this demon's trying to throw him into the fire, where, into the water. He's trying to cast him into fire. I mean, how hard is this? Every step of this kid's life, the enemy trying to take him out. And what do we read in Scripture? The, the devil seeks only to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, that's his whole game. We're not messing around with something easy and light here. And listen, this next series we have coming up, we're going to unpack a lot more of what all this spiritual stuff is about. What, does it look, what is demon possession? What does that even look like? But for now, hear this. Demons are real. Like, like, let's not make the error that, that sometimes Christians can make where, where we forget that we live in a world where there is a very real spiritual battle going on, that demons are real. They want to take us out. That's a side we can err on. The, the other side we can err on is, is we fear too much. But, but listen, remember the mountaintop. Fear not and rise. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so what's the dad say? He says, this is what's been going on. This is what this demon has been doing to my child. And he says this in verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I mean, it's such an amazing request, isn't it? It's so humble. He, he's not negotiating. He's not saying, God, uh, Jesus, I promise I'll do this for you. Do you want me to give your ministry? Do you want me to, like, what do you need me to do? And he's like, listen, I know I'm not deserving of anything. I just ask for mercy and compassion. And so Jesus says to him in verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, because he says, if you can do this, he's like, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the dad yells out right away this amazing prayer. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. This isn't a quiet, uh, just an unspoken request. I want to give you Jesus. No, like he, he cries this thing out. I believe, help my unbelief. He's like, man, I, I want to believe, and I, I came here hoping you could do something. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But I, I even believe, but I want to believe. I mean, while he's talking, the boy is seizuring. He's got, I've got this huge mess of unbelief in me, and, and so often it overwhelms me, and my belief is so tiny, and my unbelief is so huge. I mean, can you relate to this prayer at all? Amen, right? 
Maybe you have a prodigal child and, and you have these questions. Like, God, what did I do wrong? God, God they're so far. They're, they're, I, I see destruction coming. And, and God, why? God, God, how? God, I believe you can, you can redeem and rescue, but I, I don't know. Or maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Like, God, can you actually restore this? I mean, I, I hear about other couples finding hope and healing. Like, help my unbelief. Or, or maybe you, you're battling sickness and the doctors have not given you a lot of hope and you find that fear is creeping in. And you're like, God, I, I want to believe you can heal. I've, I've heard about other people even right here in our church who've been prayed over and were healed, but it, it doesn't look like it's going to be my story. I believe. Help my unbelief. As a pastor, I've sat by the bedsides of many people. I prayed this same prayer. I've been like, God, if I was writing the story, I wouldn't write it the way you're writing it. Would you bring healing in this moment? I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, this verse here isn't a, a storybook verse. This is a very real dad crying out with a very real prayer comes before Jesus says, Jesus, I've got nothing to bring you except for this little bit of belief and a whole lot of unbelief. I'm not trying to make a deal with you. I'm just bringing my, my brokenness, my need to you. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't respond to this man's prayer and say, tell you what, bro, come back when your faith is up to miracle working faith level, and then I'll see what I can do. No, what's he do? Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this thing cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I got to wonder what the disciples were doing as they were trying to help this man. I got to believe they had good hearts, good intentions, but what was going on? Maybe, maybe they were going through the motions. Maybe they had the, the right idea like, oh, this is how we do it because this is how we've always done it. Here's the things we need to do. And they had all the right ideas, but missing the heart of worship that would drive them to prayer, depending fully on the spirit of God to do the work. I heard somebody say it this way, how long would it take for you to notice that the Spirit of God's left your home? Because you're doing everything right, you're doing all the good things, but are you desperately calling out for God? I mean, let's not be so wrapped up in going through the motions that we don't miss the Spirit of God. So let's be in the Word, let's be on our knees in prayer, let's be in worship. And this, this dad isn't trying to muster up more faith, he's just trying to get to Jesus, it's not about the size of your faith. It's what you put your faith in. And saving faith comes when you say, I can't do this. I need Jesus. So how do we walk in the valley? I think this dad gives us the answer. He's the only one in this account that sees his weakness and desperately tries to get to Jesus. I think the whole point of how these two stories, how these two accounts are so close together is that, that God isn't revealing himself to us so that we could sit up on the mountain and just soak it all in, but he reveals himself to us so we can live in the valley. 
whether we're on mission and we face persecution or difficulties or whether we're just living in a broken world. So what do we do? We, we go on mission because we realize, God, you didn't reveal yourself to me so I could just soak it up here on this mountaintop, but, but you did this so I could be sent, so I could go. And, and so that worship is what fuels our mission. If mission is weak in your life, if you're like, man, I don't know if I do a lot of serving. I don't know if I have the courage to share the gospel. I, listen, I, it's not about doing more. It's about seeing Jesus and his glory and his grace. And listen, you will be so changed that you can't but help go. You, you have, you're like, man, I got to talk about Jesus because I've seen him. I know his glory. Because if you're in the valley yourself, I mean, will, will that tribulation, will that suffering, will, will that experience make you wiser, deeper, stronger, sweeter, or will it make you bitter, hard-hearted, joyless? Is, is it going to drive you closer to God or away from God? Will it make you more compassionate for other people or make you hard and cynical? I mean, Jesus says so clearly in his word, he says, you will have tribulations in this world. Jesus says so clearly, before the crown comes the cross. So what's the key then? What is it that will keep tribulations from making us hardened? What, what, what will make, take the tribulations and make us more like Jesus, turn, turn the, the trials into something so great? The answer is worship that we would see only Jesus. So here's how we're going to end this morning. Um, I want us to take some time to seek Jesus. I mean, if, if you relate so well to this dad in the story and you have a serious need, you're, you're in an impossible situation, listen, the tomb is empty. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. And, and listen, God promises to either deliver you out of the fire that you're in or he promises to walk with you through the fire. And so I want us to seek him this morning. So for some of you, maybe it's, it is a prodigal son or daughter and it's just breaking your heart today. And, and you pray like crazy that they would come home, they'd come to their senses. And so I want this morning, I want to invite you to pray. Maybe your impossible situation is financial and you feel crushed by it. You're saying, God, I need you to do something. Maybe for you this morning, it's, it is a health crisis. You're like, God, I just, I just I want to glorify you through this. But God, I also just want to ask you, if, if you could, if you would, would you take this from me? Maybe for you this morning, it's fear. And, and you're gripped by fear every time you look at your circumstances, paralyzed by this fear. Maybe for you this morning, it's your marriage. And you've read all the books, but, but you start to recognize maybe this isn't a communication problem. Maybe Jesus needs to get up into my marriage and bind some stuff and loose some stuff. Because there's a battle going on that isn't flesh and blood, but there's a spiritual element to it. And this morning, you would cry out, I believe, help me, I believe. Maybe it's bitterness and unforgiveness. Like, I don't know how I can move beyond this, that you'd come see Jesus. Maybe it's guilt and shame or, or anxiety and depression, and, and you hear the gospel every Sunday, but, but it's not reaching deep to that shame. And it's, it's, it's... Maybe this morning you say, God, I need you to unbind this. Maybe it's addictions. 
whether it's substances, whether it's things, pornography. You're like, God, I've been trying. I've been trying. You're like, I don't want this, but my heart is drawn to it. Listen, maybe it only comes out with prayer. Maybe that demonic is only dealt with when you seek Jesus in prayer. And Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew, he says, guys, it's about faith. But he tells them this in Matthew. He says, it's, it's the faith of the small little mustard seed. If you have just that much, the smallest bit of faith, he says, you can move mountains with that. Nothing's impossible. You, you know, I, just, I just have a tiny, just a tiny bit of faith. Jesus goes, that's all you need. That's plenty. Because a tiny faith in an, in an infinite God is, is infinitely more powerful than putting all your faith or trust in your current circumstances. So whether you've prayed for healing or deliverance or freedom a thousand times before, or this is the first time that you call out, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team up. <clears throat> Listen, as they, as they come up, I, I would ask this, just with just heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I'm going to pray for us that everybody here across the room would, be, would join me in prayer. But um, maybe even right now as I pray, I, I, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. And maybe this morning you're like, yeah, that's me. I am that dad. I'm going to ask you to, to do something, and, and it might be hard, might be scary, but maybe this is the, the move of worship that you make, um, that while we sing, that maybe you, you make a move. Maybe it's a move of, of dropping to your knees where you are. Maybe it's a move of grabbing somebody and saying, would you pray with me? Maybe, maybe it's this. While we sing, I'm going to ask our elders Elders, wives, if you're here, that you come forward even right now. Um, if you're a small group leader, if you're one of our ministry leaders, that you come forward. And you're going to say, listen, if, if you're that dad in the story, if, 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 if God's been, been, been pressing in your heart, and you're like, man, it's just so hard, I, I'm going to ask this, that you would come forward. Not that there's something magical about that, but it's, it's an act of humility and worship. And I get it, our church is awkwardly set up because we put as many chairs in here as we can, so there's not a lot of room up here to pray. But somebody was saying this morning as we're praying that, man, if, if people ripped open roofs to get to Jesus, you, you can pray in a, in a cramped um, front of a church, right? Amen. And as we sing, I would say this, maybe this is the moment. I'm not saying something miraculous happens because you do something at church where you come forward, but maybe this is a step of humility, a step of worship where, where you say, I just need Jesus. And then you come up and grab somebody, and here's all you're saying. You're saying this. Can you pray for this? And be prayed for. Be prayed over. Let me pray for us right now, and we're going to sing. I'm going to say just come. Come as God leads you. Come right away. Don't wait for the song to end. I mean, like, as we sing that God would be stirring your heart, that, that people be praying. And listen, if, if people are coming up and if you, you see someone go up and you're like, man, I want to pray for that person, you come up too, grab them and say, let me pray for you. Let's, let's bear burdens together this morning that as an act of worship and humility, this place becomes a hospital. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we love you more than anything because you loved us first. And I pray that even this morning, Lord God, that addictions would fall off. I, I, I pray this morning that by the power of your spirit that marriages could be healed, that bodies would be healed.
that because of your presence and your power and your glory in this place, that fear would no longer rule, but perfect love would cast out fear. Lord God, that the enemy has no place in this church. I, I pray that, that prodigals would come home. I, I, I pray that depression would turn into joy. I pray that addictions would turn into being captivated by you and you alone. And God, I know that's a huge prayer. I know that there's so much behind that. And I know that it, it, it seems so much more complicated than a simple prayer. But God, I come saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord God, I pray this in the name, the only name that matters as we think about these things. The only name that matters when we pray. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, as we sing, would you come? Would you come? We'd love to pray with you. Let's sing.